Good morning again. We are uh, definitely wanting to pray alongside of Larry and Melissa Lewis uh, that you just saw in the video, as well as Daniel and others that are part of Mosaic Church in the Czech Republic. And, and here's something really cool. Uh, some of you may very well even know the Lewises. Uh, Larry is an Aggie uh, and actually is, I think, on furlough right now. And when he comes back stateside, he stays in Snook. You ever heard of a little town called Snook down the road? Uh, so we have kind of a, a hometown buy-in with the ministry that's taking place there in the Czech Republic. And every Sunday when we gather, if you give financially to the ministry of Living Hope Baptist Church, and a portion of that money goes to something that is called the Cooperative Program, which is a, the way that Southern Baptists pull our money together to uh, fund missionaries and church plants all around the world. And so every Sunday morning, if you give something to Living Hope, you actually are giving a portion of that directly to the Lewis family. But right now, we're doing something even beyond that, and that is 100% of what we give to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering goes not directly to the Lewises, but 100% of it goes directly to international missionaries around the world. And uh, so I encourage you that this week, you'll be praying for missionaries like the Lewises around the world as we partner with them to share the gospel with all peoples, tribes, and nations uh, around the globe. And that you also would be praying about how God would lead you to give financially to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. I know that some of you have already done so. Uh, as of yesterday, we'd received $1,300, but we want to give much more than that. So we, I would ask you to pray about giving above and beyond what you normally give to the ongoing ministry of Living Hope and give directly to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. So you may be wondering, how in the world do you go about doing that? There are some of these envelopes that are circulating around. You can use, and if there's money or check in here, it'll go to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Or you can take a normal offering uh, envelope and just put it on their Lottie Moon. Or you can put it on your memo of your check, or you can give online. Be sure and select Lottie Moon Christmas offering. But we want to highlight not only the Lewises, but the opportunity for us to give towards this missions offering in general. Um, this is a time of year that we uh, think about giving and being generous, and we think of Christmas presents, and that's fine and wonderful, but how more exciting would it be for us to, alongside of the way we give to Christmas uh, presents, that we would give towards this Christmas offering that goes towards international missions around the world. So I uh, just wanted to kind of make you aware of that. Also, as we gather this morning, uh, I meant to mention this a moment ago, and I didn't do that. As we gather this morning in our building to be able to worship, there are many churches here in the United States as of this weekend that could not gather in their church building. Uh, you probably saw on the news, four or five states were hit with a very severe um, uh, tornado. Many, many churches were blown to the ground. Mayfield, Kentucky is almost uh, totally obliterated. Several things in Bowling Green, Kentucky, and, and then other places in Tennessee. And we want to be praying for those cities. Uh, we want to be praying for the gospel to be shared as people recover from something tragic like that. So as we gather this morning, I'd like for us to take just a moment to pray for places like that that are experiencing difficulty um, in, this, in this season. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that we have a church building to come together and worship in this morning, but we're reminded that sometimes things such as a natural disaster can change everything in an instant, but the reality is that you are just as much God right now today as you were before the storms came through. God, you are with your people there in those cities, in, in Kentucky and in and, and Illinois and, and Tennessee and other places that were, were devastated by the storm that came through this weekend. God, I know that this is just one example of the difficulty in life that happens on a regular basis, that we don't always uh, stop and think about how, how life is impacted around us. But God, in this moment, may this be representative of the desire for us to pray for people all over our country, all over the world as they face difficulties, that in the midst of the difficulties that they're facing, that they would experience what this Christmas season is all about. As we've talked about this idea of joy, that we can have joy in spite of our outward circumstances, that joy is found in Jesus Christ. And so this morning, God, I pray that you'd help us to focus on that truth, help us to hear your word clearly, and help us to celebrate and worship you for who you are. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. This year, we have been walking through the New Testament. 
And we're now in the last book that we're reading as a church family. It's not the last book of the New Testament. It's actually the first one. It's just that we read kind of out of order. And so we are now today uh, in the book of Matthew. I'm excited about what's going to happen when the calendar turns to 2022. Not necessarily because things are going to change. It's going to be way better than 21. 21 has been a challenge. 22 probably will be a challenge in and of itself as well. But I'm excited as we turn the calendar for the preaching uh, calendar. And, and here's where we're going in 2022. We are going to be walking through verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the book of Acts. Um, and in the book of Acts, we see God at work in and through his people followers of Jesus Christ that make up the church, and we're going to see how those words apply to us today. And so the majority of the year 2022 will be spent studying the book of Acts, and I encourage you to be a part of that. But today we're finishing up, or, or rounding the corner to finish up the book of Matthew. So I'd encourage you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. If you've not got a Bible handy, there should be one in a chair under you or beside you or near you. You can pick up that copy of the scripture. Matthew's the first book in the New Testament. If you don't own a Bible or you need a Bible, feel free to take that Bible home with you. Then we would like to give that to you as a gift. Before we dive into chapter 11 of Matthew, I want us to kind of walk through a little bit of what has taken place here. Jesus is the coming king. That, that's what we've titled this series in Matthew, The Coming King. Jesus is the coming king. In that time period, he was the king that would be coming, the Messiah, the promised one. He had been promised for hundreds and actually thousands of years that a Messiah was coming. Today, we know that he's coming again, and Howard mentioned that a moment ago. But in this scenario, in the book of Matthew, Jesus is the coming king that had been promised for hundreds of years. And then there's a guy by the name of John the Baptist. Maybe you've heard of him before. John the Baptist was part of the preparation for the coming of the king. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to Matthew chapter 3. In Matthew chapter 3, we pick up the story of John the Baptist. We need to know a little bit about him so that when we get to chapter 11, it makes more sense. But in John chapter 3, sorry, Matthew, I said John because John's the character. In Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And here's what he preached. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here is this promise that a king is coming. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he, meaning John, he is the one who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when Isaiah said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So that is a little bit about John preparing for the arrival of the king. Then look down in verse 11. In verses 11 and 12, we see that John was baptizing as well, just as Howard did a moment ago. But he's baptizing out in the Judean wilderness in the River Jordan. And here's what he says about the one who's coming, the king, Jesus Christ. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he, the Messiah, the Christ, who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. Listen to what he says. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. There's this picture of judgment that would come when the king comes. The story goes on from there. We won't take the time to read this verse, but Matthew chapter 4 verse 12 tells that John the Baptist actually gets arrested. The reason I'm not reading that verse is because it doesn't give a whole lot of details. But in chapter um, 14, if you don't mind turning with me to John, sorry Matthew, I keep saying the wrong guy. Matthew chapter 14, we're going to see an explanation of why he was arrested. He's actually arrested in chapter 4, then it fast forwards to chapter 14 that tells his death that's coming, and it kind of has a flashback and tells us about his arrest. This is not the fact that he's been arrested twice. It's a reflection on why he was arrested back in chapter 4. So Matthew chapter 14, verses 3 and 4. We read that King Herod Antipas had him arrested. It says, For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. So here we see that John was arrested. 
We see that he was arrested by King Herod Antipas, and we see why he was arrested. Because John was standing up to King Herod saying, you should not have divorced your wife so that your brother and his wife could get divorced, her name is Herodias, so that the two of y'all could get married. He's saying it's sin that y'all both divorced and had an affair and got married, and this is not how it should be. And for that very reason, Antipas had John arrested. The rest of Matthew chapter 14, maybe you're familiar with this, uh, continues with a party that's going on. And Herodias' daughter, Herod's stepdaughter, begins to dance for the king. And the king says, hey, if you'll dance for me, I will give you anything up to half of my kingdom. And so we see what happens. She says, would you give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter? Verses 10 and 11 in Matthew 14 says that Herod sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. So, when we turn back to our text today, which is Matthew chapter 11, this happens in the in-between time. Matthew 11 happens between the time that John is arrested and when John is beheaded. And so we see this idea that John is in, in prison and he sends his disciples to find out more about Jesus. Look with me at Matthew 11, verses 2 through 6. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, this is Jesus, he sent word by his disciples and he said to Jesus, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So the reason I read all that preceding text with John is so that you can kind of know what is going on in the context of Matthew 11. There are many principles for understanding God's word rightly, to interpret it, to observe the details that are important to help us kind of understand what's going on. And one of those is understanding the context, what's happening around there, what's bringing these circumstances to be. And so that's why I kind of dug back and showed you what's taking place in John's life. John has been arrested by the king, not because of anything that he's done wrong, but because he stood up for the truth of God's word. And so he's unjustly in prison. He had come and pointed towards the Messiah that would be, and he's pointing towards Jesus. And now he spent many months in prison, perhaps even up to a year, and he's beginning to have questions about everything taking place around him. He began to have some doubts. He had trusted that Jesus was the Messiah, but the question is, is he really the Messiah? So in verse 4, or actually, verse 3, he says, Jesus, are you the one who is to come? In other words, Jesus, are you really the coming king? This question that he poses for Jesus is a question that all of us must answer. And that's the question of who is Jesus? Who is Jesus and does that answer matter to me? Who is Jesus and how does that impact my life? This is a pertinent question for every single person of every age to ask and seek the question. But honestly, I'm, I'm left with this question. John, why are you asking this question of Jesus? I mean, John, weren't you the one that was in the wilderness preaching about the one who would come and how he is greater than you? Weren't you the one that said that the Messiah was on his way? And now you're doubting it. I mean, look at these words. This, this comes from John, the Gospel of John, and his reflection of the baptism of Jesus. Jesus shows up to John the Baptist. He seeks to be baptized. John's going, I don't need to be the one baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. And Jesus says, no, John, you need to do this. And, and here's what takes place at his baptism. John chapter 1, verse 29 
just before the baptism. It says, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So how could this John, who looked at Jesus and said, this is the Messiah, this is the promised one, this is the Lamb of God, this is the one who will die for our sins, that our sins might be forgiven. How can this John the Baptist go from, this is the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world, and then turn around a few months later and say, wait a minute, Jesus, are you really the one who is to come? Or should we be looking for someone else? You might be going, how did he flip the script? Like, how did he do this? Did he maybe not believe it back then and now he's showing his real colors? No, I don't think so at all. I think he believed it back then. I think he wants to believe it right now. It's just that circumstances in his life are bringing out this doubt in him and he's not sure what to do with it. I want to walk through some possible scenarios why John asks this question. Why is John saying to Jesus, are you the Christ or should we wait on someone else? I mean, if he knew it intellectually, why is he asking that question now? Here's some possible reasons. The first reason is this. John had been preaching that the Messiah would come and that when the Messiah comes, he would make all things right. That he would bring judgment You remember those verses at at, at the baptism uh, or when John's out in the wilderness, he's saying that that God is sending his Messiah who would bring his winnowing fork and he would bring judgment on the world. So his preaching and what Jesus is doing doesn't seem to match. John believed in imminent judgment and blessing and circumstances said otherwise. Here's another reason why I think John had doubts. goes along with that, and that is that John, Jesus, I'm sorry, did not match the expectations that John and others had. Their idea of a Messiah or a promised one coming would be that he would come in, he would set up shop, he would be the king of Israel, he would be politically involved, and he would overthrow the Roman government. None of that's taking place. None of it is appearing like they expected. And so John begins to have doubts because of his preconceived idea of what the Messiah looked like and did, and Jesus isn't doing it. And then the third reason, right alongside all of that, it's all in one big ball, and that is John is suffering in prison. And if Jesus is truly the Messiah and is bringing judgment, and if Jesus is bringing deliverance, then how come he is rotting away in prison? And then as we see in chapter 14, why is it that he ends up dying when John should have experienced the deliverance that the Messiah was supposed to bring? So his suffering is causing him to have doubts. I'm going to talk about this in just a moment. But it could be that in your own life, right now, you have doubts, you have questions, you're angry at God, you're confused, you're mad, you're not certain, you're scared, you're fearful, you're unsure, you don't know what the future holds. And so because of that, your thought, your intellectual thought on God hasn't changed, but experientially there's turmoil and distress inside of you. What I want us to see is you aren't alone. Here in Matthew chapter 11, as well as many other places, we see followers of Jesus who begin to have second doubts, questions, concerns, fears, distress. The question is, what do we do with those fears and concerns and distress? The good news is that John went straight to the source. Obviously, he couldn't get out of prison and go to Jesus, so he sent some of his boys to Jesus and said, would you please go find out what's going on? What are you facing in life today? What has you upset, concerned, bothered, fearful? My question is, are we, notice I say we, because I'm in this boat with you too, are we 
going to go straight to the source? Or are we going to try to solve things on our own? So that, that's kind of where we're going with this story. We see that John is confused, and so he sends for an answer. Now I want us to look at how Jesus answers him. Verse 4, he says, hey, I'm going to tell you some things. I'm going to show you some things, and then I want you to go and tell it to John. But his answer is found in verse 5. When John says, are you the Messiah? Are you the promised one? Are you the one that's coming? Or should we look for someone else? Here is what Jesus says to them in verse 5. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. On the back of your sermon notes, I meant to mention this a moment ago, but we have a place where you can take notes. Sorry, on the back of your sermon notes. On the back of your worship guide, we have sermon notes where you can take notes. And on this, you're going to see my my first point. Verse 5 makes it clear to us that Jesus is the Christ. I mean, that's the answer that Jesus gives to John's disciples when they say, are you the promised one? Are you the coming one, or should we look for someone else? He says, look to what's happening around you, and you'll see that I'm the Christ. I mean, Jesus could have answered this way. Stop being silly, John. Yes, I'm the Messiah. You know that already. Stop bothering me with your questions. But instead, here's what Jesus says. Jesus Yes, he gives words to share with them, but it's not like a sermon. Rather, his words point to his actions. He says, when you look at my actions, you'll see the proof that I am the Messiah. So, let's look at each one of these proofs found in verse 5. I'm not going to read the verses that I'm going to mention. You may want to jot it down uh, on your notes. But with each one of these signs that Jesus lists, I'm going to point to some scripture where that very thing happens. I purposefully have most of them found in the book of Matthew because this is Matthew's gospel, but there's one that I'm going to point to, uh, the gospel of Mark. And you're going to see how these things have been happening in verse chapters 8 and chapter 9 of of Matthew. The first one says this, the blind receive their sight. You can jot this down. Matthew 9, chapter, sorry, chapter 9, verse 27 through 31. Matthew 9, 27 through 31, in that text, we see that Jesus healed two blind men. It's not the only time he healed blind men, but there's a couple of examples right there in Matthew. The next phrase, which is the lame walk, we know that Jesus healed a lot of paralytic men, but in one of those circumstances is found in Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Then... He says lepers are cleansed. Do you know much about lepers? Lepers back then were not just the official leprosy we think of today. Rather, leprosy was kind of this hodgepodge of skin conditions that would cause a breakout of your skin. And so some of that would be long-lasting, some of it wouldn't be. But if you had leprosy, according to the law, you were unclean. And therefore, you were literally untouchable. Because if someone else touched you, they may get what you have, and they may become lepers themselves. And so the cool thing is, when it says that the lepers are cleansed, you can mark down Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Do you know how Jesus healed the leper in Matthew 8, verses 1 through 4? He touches him. So Jesus not only heals this leper, he doesn't do it from a distance, he does it by touching him. Then it says that the deaf hear. I couldn't find anywhere in the Gospel of Matthew where the deaf are healed, but we know that a deaf and mute man is healed in Mark chapter 7, verses 31 through 37. And then it says that the dead are raised up, come back to life. Do you remember when Jesus is sent for by a ruler because his daughter was sick and then she ends up dying and we see that he brings her back from the dead? That's found in Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 through 26. And then whenever it says that the 
good news, the gospel is preached to the poor. We see that the gospel of the coming of the kingdom is mentioned all throughout the gospels, but, but, but in keeping with uh, previous verses, you can see it in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. Now, I walked through all of these. You may be thinking, well, Alan, I don't know why you took the time to mention that. I mean, this list is pretty commonplace. It happens everywhere. It's almost like we read these verses, and we're, we're amazed on one hand, and on the other, we're not, because we're so familiar with the miracles of Jesus, and we may be thinking, but Jesus, why are you saying that this is the answer to the question that you are the Christ? What is significant about this list? We see while it's commonplace in the New Testament that these, these miracles and these healings took place, it wasn't commonplace in the Old Testament. And so for them to see that someone is doing this is actually pointing to something incredible. It's not that Jesus is a magician and can do all these miracles. Rather, these miracles point to the fact that he is the Messiah, the Christ, the promised one, because that's what the prophets said would take place. In the Old Testament, whenever the prophets would talk about the coming of the Messiah, Isaiah, he would mention that in the year of the Lord, the, the year when the Messiah would come, these healings would take place. And so essentially what Jesus is saying to the disciples of John is say, hey, John, would you go back and read Isaiah? You'll be reminded that these things happen when the Messiah comes. Well, we're seeing it with our very eyes. These healings and miracles that are taking place prove that I am the Messiah. I want to read a few verses from Isaiah. Isaiah lists some of these miracles that Jesus is performing. I want us to look at Isaiah chapter 35. I'm actually going to start in verses 5 and 6. Isaiah 35 verse 5 and verse 6. Isaiah is prophesying about the coming of the Messiah, the kingdom of God. He says, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Sounds exactly like the things that Jesus mentioned in Matthew. Flip back to Isaiah chapter 26. Isaiah 26, verse 19. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. Probably a passage you're familiar with more than those passages, Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah 61, we're going to read verses 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. The word anointed here points to the Messiah. The word Messiah, the word Christ means anointed one. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. So those are just a few passages out of Isaiah that points to the coming Messiah and that when he comes, these healings will take place. And so Jesus is saying, the proof is in what I'm doing. I'm the Messiah, I'm the Christ, I am the one who was promised and I'm fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies. If you were here last week, you know we looked at Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, when Jesus said he didn't come to abolish the law and prophets, rather he came to fulfill them. He has fulfilled the law and the prophets. I want to read one more set of verses from Luke chapter 4. Maybe you remember this story. One of the first times we find Jesus speaking in the book of Luke is when he shows up in his hometown of Nazareth. He, he walks into the synagogue and he's invited as the hometown boy to read the text. And the text from that day that they were supposed to be reading was actually from Isaiah chapter 61. So Jesus it says in Luke chapter 4 that he enrolled the prophet Isaiah, the scroll, and here's what he read, Luke 4, verse 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So Jesus is exactly who the prophets said he would be. He is 
the Messiah. He is the Christ. Jesus says, just as the prophets said that the kingdom of God would be ushered in with miraculous healings and the preaching of the good news, I am doing that very thing. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus does bring restoration and deliverance. John was looking for restoration and deliverance by getting out of jail. John was looking for restoration and deliverance by having Rome overthrown. But Jesus brings restoration and deliverance beyond the scope of political jargon, and he brings deliverance and restoration to individual lives that are impacted by his work and his ministry and his good news. You see, Jesus was living up to all of the scriptural expectations of the Messiah. The only expectations he wasn't living up to were the popular expectations. You know, we sometimes do the same thing to God. We have expectations that we place on him, and we get frustrated and mad at him when he doesn't meet our expectations. But if our expectations don't line up with what scripture says, then our expectations are going to fall through every time. So we must dig into Scripture to understand who Jesus is. So here's the first thing. We see that Jesus is the Christ. And each one of us need to seek to understand what that means for us and are we going to accept the truth that he is the Christ or not. Based on the fact that he is the Christ, we see the second point on my notes, and that is we can trust him. Because Jesus is the Christ, we can trust him. Because Jesus can do all these miracles, we can trust him. It goes along with what one of uh, uh, either Eli or Cora said a moment ago that I think it was Eli that if God can do this, if he can do these big miracles, then he can save my soul. If God can do these big miraculous things, then he can deal with my stuff that I'm dealing with. So we can trust him. You see, John was dealing with doubts. He was trying to figure out, could he trust Jesus or not? Jesus says, I'm the Messiah, so therefore you can trust me. The funny thing or the ironic thing is that John is not the first one dealing with doubts. John the Baptist is referred to a lot of times as Elijah. Do you remember what Elijah's story is? We're not going to take the time to read it, but you may want to mark it down. 1 Kings chapters 18 and 19 is the story or the account of where John... Uh, sorry, Elijah faces the prophets of Baal. Do you remember this story? And so the prophets of Baal and, and, and Elijah, they both, each one of them make an altar. They call on their God to light the fire and to burn the, the offering. And uh, understandably, prophets of Baal are completely unsuccessful. Elijah sees fire come from heaven, burn up the offering, and we see God get the victory. But then on the heels of the victory that God brings, what happens to Elijah. He gets scared. He runs from his lo- for his life from Jezebel, the queen. He then literally says, God, I'd rather go ahead and die right now because I'm the only one following you. No one else is. And God says, wake up. You're not the only one following me. There are others that are following me as well. Stop doubting and trust in me. You and I, this morning... I know for a fact, some of us are doubting things about God right now. Why is it? What causes doubt to come up in our lives? I think the doubt that John is facing, the doubt that Elijah faced, the doubt that you and I face, there are at least three reasons that we face doubt. The first one is this, our difficult situations bring doubt for us. Difficult situations. Guys, we have had more than our fair share of difficult circumstances these last two years. I thought 2020 was rough and 2021 would bring better things, but the reality is, in my life anyway, 21 far outweighs the difficulty that 2020 brought. I was reading a tweet from a a, a pastor uh, this week. And he said the same thing, that 2020 
uh, sorry, 2021 has been the hardest year to lead an organization, whether it be a pastor or a business or whatever. It's been the hardest year to lead by far worse than 2020. Think about all the circumstances that our nation, our world, our government, our society, our church body, our church family, all of the stuff that we have faced in the last two years. And because of those difficult situations and circumstances, doubt can begin to creep in. Another reason doubt comes in is because of unmet expectations. But God, you're supposed to make it easy to follow you. God, you're supposed to come to my rescue exactly in the moment that I call for you to pull me out of my circumstances. You're supposed to bring healing and not death. Whatever those expectations we have of God, when he doesn't act like we think we should, doubt can come in. And then the third thing is when we have a limited perception. The reality is, all the time, our perception is limited. As challenging as these last two years have been, not only on our church family at Living Hope Baptist Church, but in every church that I've talked to as pastors. I I went to a conference, Nathan and I went to a conference in D.C. back in September. I met a lot of pastors up there. I've talked to a lot of pastors locally. 100% of the pastors I've talked to have highlighted that their churches are facing the exact same things that our church is facing today. And as challenging as these last two years have been, what if our limited perception is causing us to miss what God is doing in this moment where he is refining the church, where he is growing the church, where he is seeking to disciple us to trust in him more and more? What if there's more going on than what we can see with our eyes? I know for a fact there is. Scripture says that we don't face an earthly battle, we face a spiritual battle. And so whenever we have limited perception, that can cause doubt to creep in. And so this becomes the perfect recipe for doubt, discouragement, and defeat. So my question is, does does doubting, if I doubt at any point in time, if John the Baptist doubted, if Elijah doubted, if you doubted, if, if, is doubting, does that mean we have completely abandoned our faith in God, our belief in God? And the reality is that in the moment of doubt, no. Doesn't mean we've totally abandoned our belief in God. Let, let's look at, at, at an example. This is one of my, um, well, actually, not yet. I was starting to look at another quote. Um, yeah, let me, let, me, let me read this quote. Oz Guinness, I don't know if you know this name or not, but he's an author, and here's what Oz Guinness says. Doubt is not the opposite of faith, nor is it the same as unbelief. Rather, doubt is a state of mind in suspension between faith and unbelief. So the question is, when we find ourselves in this doubt, where we're suspended between faith and unbelief, what are we going to do when we find ourselves there. Now, this takes us to one of the favorite verses of mine in the Bible. Turn with me to Mark chapter 9. This is a story of an encounter that Jesus has with a father. This father has a son who has an unclean spirit, and he's talking to Jesus about how bad it is, and he's saying, Jesus, could you please do something if you're able to heal my son? Could you maybe, perhaps, would you heal my son? Look at Mark chapter 9, verse 22 through 24. This is the conclusion of his explanation. You may want to go back and read the whole encounter later today, but it says here that he's talking to Jesus. He says, and it has often cast him, his son, into the fire and into water to destroy him. But, he says, but Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus doesn't mock him, but Jesus kind of clarifies, and he says, and Jesus says to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And I love how the father responds. Verse 24, immediately the father of the child cried out, and he said, I believe, help my unbelief. 
Here, here is this father. He is in this place of doubt. He's suspended between believing that Jesus can and not sure if he can believe it. And so when he's called to make a decision, the father admits where he is, and he says, even though I still have some doubts, I know you can, I believe you can, I have faith in you, and Jesus, because I can't say I have 100% faith, would you give me the ability to believe? The truth of the matter is this, none of us can believe and trust in God by ourselves. It is the Holy Spirit at work within us that gives us the ability even to believe. So I don't know where you're at right now. I don't know where your doubt, discouragement, defeat, frustrations, concerns, whatever the word is, wherever you are right now, be like this, Father. Confess your difficulty to believe and then ask God to help you in it. So how do we respond when we have doubt? I think the answer is found right here in Matthew chapter 11, verses 4 and 5. Uh, sorry, 5 and 6, 5 and 6. In verse 5, he points the disciples back to Scripture. He points them to what Isaiah and the prophets have said. So you and I, when we have doubt in our life, whatever the doubt may be, we need to first and foremost focus on what God's Word reveals to us. See, Jesus pointed to what he was doing and what the prophets had said about what the Messiah would do. And he's saying, instead of doubting, look to who I am and what my word says. All too often when we're in doubt, at least for me, one of the biggest and one of the first mistakes we can make is to stop engaging in reading God's word. We run from God. We aren't sure. But I believe actually some of the most serious studying and, and absorbing of God's word, actually we should do it all the time, but some of the most serious and absorbing of God's word can happen actually in our moments of doubt because we're pursuing God and we want to turn to him for our answers instead of what our own thoughts are. And we need to look to who he is in his word. How do you respond in doubt? Go to God's word. The only way we can know who God is, the only way we can understand who he is, is having the foundation of the biblical revelation of the truth of who he is. So dig into God's word. The second thing to respond to doubt is actually found in verse 6. I want to read it. After Jesus says, hey, I'm the Messiah, and here's how you can know it, because I'm fulfilling the prophecy, then he says, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. I think what Jesus is saying is, John, I've pointed you back to the truth of my word, and now step out in faith and trust me. I believe that John the Baptist did that very thing, because if you look down in Matthew 11, verse 11, here's what Jesus says about John. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there is arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. I don't think that John walked away offended by Jesus. I think he walked away in joyful submission to who Jesus is. So when you have doubts, first turn to God's word, and as a result of turning to his word, joyfully submit and trust in him. I think that's the recipe for dealing with our doubts. You see, when we see God for who he really is, then we can trust him. My question for all of us this morning is this. Are you trusting in God today? What is it in your life that may be causing you to struggle with this today? I've alluded to some of these things already, and I'm going to mention them again. For some of us, the doubts and uncertainties we're dealing with 
can be wrapped up in the events of this past year or two. For some of us, our doubts and fears and concerns are because relationships have fallen apart. For some of us, it's simply the uncertainty in life. Others of us, it could be difficulties or suffering in life. And one that I want to highlight for just a moment, that as your pastor, I believe many of us are dealing with whether or not we know it is past trauma from church and religious stuff. I know several of you have been listening to uh, an earth-shaking kind of podcast lately. It's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. It's about how a church brought pain and trauma into the lives of many of their people. Uh, There's different reviews out there. Some really like it, some really don't like it. But as I listened to it, I purposefully chose to listen to it because I know that we've got an elder system here at our church now. And I don't ever want us as elders to bring hurt and pain and trauma in our church members' lives. But I'll just be honest with you, as I listened to that, as I had conversations with some of you, that podcast hit home in a way that words can't even begin to describe. Please hear me. My intention right now in this moment is not to bring pain and hurt and point fingers. My intention in this moment is to say, I see you. I hear you. And I hurt with you. You maybe see that I did something that you often wonder if I ever will do, like fall off the edge of the stage. Can I tell you why I'm standing right here? Because I don't want to be up there. I want to be right beside you. Because as your pastor and as your friend, My heart hurts. And if you're going, Alan, I have no clue what you're talking about. I have no idea why you're almost acting like you want to cry. It's okay. I'm not needing really to go into a whole lot of details. I just want to say that all too often, unintentionally, and maybe even in some circumstances intentionally, but all too often unintentionally, God's people hurt God's people. I've seen it. I've witnessed it. I've experienced it myself. And all I want to say in this moment is if things in your past, whether it's related to church or not, have hurt you and brought you pain, I plead with you, go to God's word, dwell in God's word, remind yourself of who God is, and know that if Jesus was able to perform these miracles as amazing as they are, he can and he will Take the hurt that you're experiencing and enable you to trust him and to live out all that he desires for you to be. 
if my words this morning have been confusing or if my words have been difficult or if you're not sure what I'm speaking about and you want to process any of that in just a moment I'll be available at the front or later in the week or out after the service if you want to dialogue about any of that please know that I'm available but I want us to see in the midst of our life to look at what Jesus says to John's disciples and that is look to who he is and to what he does and then we can step out in faith and confidence as we trust him in the midst of our struggle and then here's the deal once we experience that we're to go out and do what he says in verse 4 in verse 4 he says now guys go and tell John what you hear and what you see whenever we experience God's deliverance and rescue in our life we go out and tell others can I say something My friend Jacob is uh, in my D group and has been in my hope group until he decided to lead his own. Some of you, if you've known Jacob for years, you know that he went through a season of hurt and pain and some of that related to church stuff. But I guarantee you he is testifying to this day on a weekly basis to me how God can and will and does bring deliverance. And if you think it's impossible to experience deliverance in that pain, go visit with Jacob. Because I believe that, guys, hear what I'm saying. I'm not setting Jacob up as being the, the be-all, end-all of perfect example. But I do know that in some ways, Jacob is like John's disciples. And Jacob came and asked Jesus, are you really able? And Jesus said, look at what I do when I bring deliverance and peace and comfort. And now Jacob, if he could, would stand on the street corner or stand on a rooftop and shout of what God has done and said in his life. I don't really know where I'm going. But I do know this. Regardless of what you're facing in life today. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If you've seen his faithfulness in his word. If you've experienced it in your life. He'll do it again have you trusted in Jesus for salvation have you experienced him as the Lord of your life have you turned from your way of doing things and said God I know I'm a sinner and I'm messed up and I'm forever eternally separated from you but because Jesus died for my sins and was raised on the third day I repent of my sins and trust in you and I trust in Jesus the only one who brings salvation would today be that day and if you've experienced his salvation are you walking in faith and obedience and trust in him. I'm going to lead us in prayer.